You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on life that Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Now, here is Stephen Olford on Today in the Word radio. Hope you've been doing your homework. And that you've been reading chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. Today we go to chapter 7, as you know. We go to chapter 7. And for those who may have just joined us, this is a series entitled Freedom Laws for Kingdom Life. The laws that determine our lives in the kingdom of God. We've just sung, He is Lord. He is King. And because we're in a kingdom, he is king, and therefore there are laws that are incumbent upon us. And we're talking about them as freedom laws for kingdom life. We've dealt with a law that governs the matter of priority, and yesterday morning, a tender subject, anxiety. Now we're dealing with a new subject altogether, and... In verses 1 through 6, we read all about it. Matthew 7 and verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye measure, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the moat? That is, a splinter, some translate it, a piece of sawdust. The mote that is in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam, or plank, or log, that is in thine own eye. I'm sure the Savior said that, even in this very solemn passage, with a smile on his face. I mean, the difference between a speck of dust and a log, a plank in your eye. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the moat out of thine eye, and behold, a beam, a log, a plank, is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the moat out of thy brother's eye. And then a very strange and very important verse. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before hogs or swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and lacerate you, or as you have in your King James Version there, rend you. A tremendous passage of God's word. And we're going to look at it here this morning. I'm calling it Freedom's Laws for Life's Maturity. Life's Maturity. And perhaps this is one of the most important messages I have to share in all the week. And uh, I want you to follow me very, very closely as we go through it. If I were to borrow Jacob's ladder and climb right up into heaven this morning, and over here, my precious Lord, our great intercessor, whoever lives to make intercession for us, pray. I kind of feel that I would hear him 
repeating the language of John 17. And among those words I would hear him saying, Father, Father, make them one. Make those children of mine, those believers of mine, those saints of mine down there on earth, make them one. Make them one that the world may believe that you have sent me. I'm convinced that the greatest grief to our risen Lord today is division and faction and schism in the body. And if you to study carefully what Paul has to say about this, he inseparably unites unity with maturity. Unity with maturity. He writes about the body of Christ and he says, we want to edify one another till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Essentially, these words are glorious, gloriously true experimentally because the wonderful thing about it is the moment you're born again, the moment you're born again and I'm born again, whether we like it or not, we're one. We're one. So often we've reversed something in the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians in this fourth chapter, which, of course, is unbiblical. We say, unless you dot every one of my I's and you cross every one of my T's, I cannot be one with you. No, says Paul. We start with endeavoring to keep the unity of the body, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's where we start. Why? Because when we're born again, we're in the one body and we're one. We share one life. Then down the chapter, it says, till we come to the unity of the faith. We start with the unity of the spirit and we move and grow until we come to the unity of the faith. And if you study that passage very carefully, the whole underlying thought and theme is that of love. While we're moving on to the unity of the faith, we're loving one another. We're loving one another. We're not talking about now people who deny the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, his actual resurrection, the inerrancy of Scripture. We're talking about all those little things on which we differ, the incidentals. And Paul says we start with the unity of the Spirit. Do you know what he says? Endeavoring to keep. That's a word I've never heard a preacher preach on. Keep. That word means like a sentinel armed from head to foot with all the artillery to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see, the unity has already been given us. It's not something we develop. It's been given us. We're to keep it. We're to keep it. We're to say, as John Stott puts it, we're to visualize here upon earth we're to actualize here upon earth the unity that's in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That unity is to be kept down here. And then we're to work out the unity of the faith until eventually we come to the fullest, fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. For some of us, that won't be until we get to glory, but it can be more and more as we go along the way. And yet, all across America today, in homes, in small churches and large churches, 
in denominations as faction and friction and schism. And I know our Lord's heart is broken about that. And you say, what's the cause of this? One of the main causes, perhaps the supreme cause, is what is known as judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. Let me quote Dr. Paul Bilheimer. I was sharing this with somebody already over the weekend. You must get a hold of Bilheimer's books. He's written three. One, Destined for the Throne, which is the greatest book I've ever read on prayer through the church. Another one is Don't Waste Your Sorrows. But the third one is Love Covers. Love Covers. And I wish that every Christian would get hold of that. Love Covers. Dr. Paul Bilheimer. And in that book, he says this. Nothing creates disunity in the church like judgmentalism. He says, when a satanically inspired controversy arises in the body, it can never be settled by loveless judgmentalism. All judgmentalism is of the devil and therefore can never heal the body. Now, those are tremendous words. And I'm convinced that this is what the Lord Jesus had in mind when he said in verse 1 here, and now we're to our text, judge not that you be not judged. Now, before we exegete this whole passage and examine the truth and apply it to our hearts, let me just make one or two things very, very clear so we are not mistaken as we approach this passage. The first point I want to make is that God has given you the capacity to judge. That's not a contradiction. Follow me carefully. God has given you the capacity to exercise judgment. It's a God-given gift. God-given gift. Our whole action and reaction to the totality of life is based on our capacity to judge. Indeed, the Christian conscience makes ethical judgment unavoidable and imperative, says one authority. So, God's given us an ability to judge, and we'll see how that comes into play in a moment. But the second thing to bear in mind is the difference between three kinds of judgment. There's a natural judgment, there's a carnal judgment, and there's a spiritual judgment. You know, those three categories are mentioned in Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians 3. Natural, carnal, spiritual. Concerning the natural man, the Bible says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. That's why it's impossible for the unregenerate to make any sense of what we do and what we say and how we live. And when he says, you're stupid, or this is a piece of lunacy, He's saying exactly what the scripture says. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. Why? Because they're spiritually deserved. So much for natural judgment. Then there's the carnal judgment. And concerning the carnal man, the same book affirms the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And when you're up against carnal Christians, oh my, 
There's an enmity, there's a hostility, there's an arrogance, and there's a divisiveness. And that was the problem at Corinth. At Corinth. All those divisions. One division following Peter. Another division following Cephas. Another division following Apollos. And then an exclusive little group called We Are of Christ. And they're at one another's throats. And Paul said, you're carnal. You're absolutely carnal. But then there's the spiritual judgment, and that's what I'm praying for, for you and for me today. When we come to the spiritual man, the tone and thrust of Scripture are completely different. The word states, he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged of no one. In other words, the manner of life he lives. You can criticize him, but it's not vindicated. Because his life is so blameless in the presence of God that really you can't point a finger at him. I mean, the Lord Jesus was criticized. <laughs> but tell you, was there anything you could criticize about the Lord Jesus? It's evident from this statement that a Christian's judgment should reflect the mind of Christ and that the closer fellowship he has with Christ, the more mature will be his judgment. This is why the apostle says, and I close with this, he who is spiritual or mature judges all things and then adds, we have the mind of Christ. Do you know what I'm praying for all of us here? That God's going to lead us, even this morning, into a new dimension of maturity. Of maturity. And how do you tell maturity? Judgment. See how a person judges. You'll know how mature they are. You'll know how mature they are. Okay, that brings us right to our text. All that's a preamble. Here it is then. Let's look at it together. Like we've done each morning, let me give you the laws. Let me give you the laws that determine, that determine maturity. First of all, the mature judgment of others must never be destructive. If we said amen there and took the offering, that'd be fine. The mature judgment of others must never be destructive. Judge not that you be not judged, verse 1. And it's clear from the context, and those of you who know your Bibles will realize this, that the master is referring here to the destructive criticism and vindictive censoriousness of the scribes and Pharisees of that day. The judgments of the scribes and Pharisees was devastating. This judgmental attitude Jesus categorically forbids, in fact, condemns. And for two reasons that we'll look at for a moment. Folk, have you ever realized that the people who crucified Jesus were not the common people? When there was a cry around that cross with our bleeding Savior, hands, feet, and side, pouring out his life's blood, it's the voice of the religious leaders that prevailed. Now, why does the Lord Jesus condemn and forbid destructive criticism? Look at it. First of all, the law of prohibition condemns it. The law of prohibition condemns it. Judge not, declared the Savior. There are certain things God forbids. I mean, he forbids. And this is one of them. This is one of them. And to violate this law of prohibition is a serious sin. 
Furthermore, it reveals a very, very low state of your spiritual life. I remember hearing W.E. Vine. There's some wonderful PBs here this morning, and I've been having wonderful fellowship with him. I was brought up under W.E. Vine, that great Greek scholar and wonderful leader of the Brethren Movement. And he made this statement, and I jotted it down years ago, and he was speaking on this very passage. He says, destructive criticism is the evidence of a state of spiritual declension. How true this is in practical experience. You and I know when a person has lost the glow, has lost spirituality, do you know what he does? He begins to lash out and attack everybody. Lash out and attack everybody. My brother Bill Caldwell was sharing with me a deep concern he had about a broadcaster recently who's just done that very thing on the air and created a lot of heartaches amongst the hearers. Let this be a warning to each one of us before we are tempted to criticize. I ask myself a few questions before I take a stand on an issue. And I think we ought to remember these questions. Is my criticism true? Is my criticism necessary? Is my criticism kind? Does my criticism conform to the word of God? Does my criticism glorify Christ? In fact, one lady wrote in and said, I don't mind this preacher criticizing this matter, but why doesn't he do it in love? You see, when Christian people give way to slanderous judgmentalism, immeasurable harm is done. And W.E. Vine, in that same sermon, told this story that was an actual event that had taken place in a local assembly where a man had picked up a criticism and turned it into a scandal about one of the most revered brethren in that particular church. And he drove that slander and criticism to such a point that it led eventually to the man's death. He was so grieved. The man had a heart attack and lay on what was virtually his deathbed. When this slandering brother heard about it, he repented and he came and he asked for forgiveness. And the old saint of God looked up and said, I forgive you completely, my brother. I forgive you completely, but I ask one favor, just one favor. Will you take the pillow from underneath my head? The man took the pillow from underneath my head. He said, pick up that pair of scissors there. And he said, will you slip that pillow right down the side? And rather apprehensively, the man did exactly as he was told. He said, now go to that window there. He said, open the window. He opened the window. He said, now dump all the down, all the feathers out of that pillow right now he said do it right now and of course the wind carried the down and feathers all over the place he said one more request go and pick up all the down and feathers i could never do that impossible how right you are said the man of god nor can you ever undo the harm 
that you've done in the church and in my life. You see, that's why Jesus said, it's forbidden, destructive criticism. That's a prohibition. But not only the law of prohibition, notice, and this is serious, the law of retribution controls it. The law of retribution controls it. Judge not what? That you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use this judgment, it'll be measured back to you. My, that's frightening. As I went over this this morning, it frightened the daylights out of me. Destructive judgment has a way of turning back on you. And this is true both from the divine point of view and the human point of view. You'll remember that earlier in this Sermon on the Mount, and that's why I've asked you to read 5, 6, and 7, the Lord Jesus said some very solemn words about forgiveness. He said this, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You can drop on your knees and say, ah, but 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't it wonderful to know that I can be forgiven now? No, sir, you cannot. You cannot. That promise is invalid if you have aught against your brother, if you have aught against your sister. And if you don't forgive that sister, and if you don't forget that, brother, forget asking God for forgiveness. And your life just goes downhill. Your life just goes downhill. But there's not only divine retribution, there's human retribution. There is a saying that a man is always paid back in his own coin. And there's a boomerang effect about this. And the Bible is full of illustrations, and I'm going to give you three quick ones because time is not on our side. Ishmael, whose hand was against every man, as a result, every man's hand was against him. Read that story in Genesis 16. Adonai Bezek, whose enemies caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. The story is told in Judges 1. And the supporting verse in Leviticus 24. As you read this story, you discover that this was done because he first mutilated 70 other people in the same way. And then, of course, the famous story of Haman. Haman! Haman, who put up gallows, you remember, to kill Mordecai. And guess who hung on the gallows? Haman. Amen. Thus we see that destructive judgment has a retribution which is both divine and human. Therefore, on the basis of the law of prohibition and the law of retribution, we daren't engage in destructive judgment. But let's turn to the positive. The next law, law number two, the mature judgment of others must always be what? Redemptive. Redemptive. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, 
A plank is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus is speaking on the same theme. There's no break in sequence here, no break in sequence. And he's talking about mature judgment. And he is telling us how to judge redemptively. And he says it in each case in a negative way to accentuate the positive. Let's take the three points he mentions. First of all, we must judge, we must not judge others hypocritically. That's point number one. We must not judge others hypocritically. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and don't consider the plank that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Notice, you hypocrite, right there. These are stinging words which cannot be evaded or avoided. Indeed, to study and ponder this is to be cured from censoriousness and judgmentalism. Consider the implications here. What is the Lord Jesus saying? He says, before you criticize and judge your brother, be sure, listen carefully, be sure that you're not play-acting. Be sure that you're not play-acting. Because the Greek word for hypocrite is the play-actor. See to it that you are not pretending to be superior. For while you're looking for a splinter in your brother's eye, make sure that that splinter didn't come from the plank that's in your own eye. While you're looking, while you're looking for a little speck of sawdust, make sure that that sawdust didn't come from the plank that you're trying to saw out of your own eye. After all, it's a well-known psychological law that what you normally condemn in other people is often a projection of what's in your own heart and own life. All right, then, we must not judge people hypocritically. Secondly, we must not judge others hastily. Hastily. First, remove the plank from your own eye. That takes a little time. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, all judgment of others should be preceded by a period of self-examination. Kneeling before the cross, we ask the Lord, Lord, tell me, what is there in my life? Was there in my life that might stumble my brother? And before I talk to him about that, am I clear? Am I clear? Am I clear? You remember how Paul deals with that same kind of thing in that matchless passage in Galatians 6.1. If any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We should never read that exhortation without underscoring those words, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So, don't be hasty in your judgment. Weigh it up, pray through, consider it carefully. Then thirdly, we must not judge others harmfully. Harmfully. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, the other morning I mentioned that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, now in glory, wrote now two volumes on the Sermon on the Mount that are classics, absolute classics. If you're ever studying the Sermon on the Mount, be sure to get those two books. And, of course, as you know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician, actually a top-rating cardiologist before he went into the ministry. So when it ever came to a 
a medical point, he had some tremendous insights. And I want to quote him now. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that the procedure of getting a moat out of an eye is a very difficult operation. There is no organ that is more sensitive than the eye. The moment the finger touches it, it closes up. It's so delicate. What you require above everything else in dealing with it is sympathy, patience, calmness, coolness. That is what is required because of the delicacy of the operation. Isn't that well said? So when we judge others, let's not do it hypocritically or hastily and certainly not harmfully. You can do more damage to the eye than the speck of dust if you're not careful. Here's a parable to guide us in all our judgment of others. It reminds me of a wonderful, wonderful incident that occurred in the ministry and influence of Count Zinzendorf. In the year 1747, there arose tremendous differences and disunity among the Moravian brethren who have given us a wonderful heritage of music and theology and probably the greatest thrust in missions. And there was such disunity that the Count thought to himself, I've got to get these people together. I've got to get these people together. Our Savior is grieved in heaven over this disunity. So with a group of his elders, he sent out messages to get all these churches from a very great distance around the country to converge in one place. Told them to come and converge about the middle of the week. And their leaders came with their position papers, absolutely convinced that when they read their position papers, they were going to win their point. They were going to get across to these other rascals who crossed their paths. And that was the mood in which they came. It's a wonderful story. And as they came, the Count said, Now then, we're not going to hold our conference to deal with these matters until Monday. Now, this is the middle of the week. Next Monday, said the Count, this is the middle of the week. The first thing we're going to do, we're going to spend three days in prayer and the study of the first epistle of John. And, of course, that first epistle of John, as you know, zeroes in on love for the brethren, love for the brethren, love for the brethren, and he who hates his brother is a murderer. That's a fantastic epistle to read before a conference. And so they studied and they, and they shared in this wonderful period of prayer and meditation on God's word. And then on Sunday, he appointed a communion service. And he spoke of the body and the oneness of that body. And that nobody could touch the bread or the wine unless they examined themselves, lest they eat to their own condemnation. And they broke bread and they drank wine together. Monday morning, he said, now let's gather for the conference. There wasn't a dissenting voice. The entire issues had been resolved. And instead, they just fell over one another's necks and loved each other and said, praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? 
That's what I call redemptive judgment. God doesn't tell us not to judge. We're stupid. We're morons if we don't use our faculties to judge. But Jesus said, not destructive judgment, redemptive judgment. Redemptive judgment. Now, lastly, a very, very interesting verse. I wonder how many have ever heard anyone preach on this verse. It looks isolated. You think it's not connected to what has been said, but it's jolly well connected. And I don't know where I get that phrase from, but anyway. <laughs> verse 6, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not cast your pearls before hogs or swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces, lacerate you to pieces. What on earth does that verse mean? It's still in the theme here of maturity in judgment. That's our whole theme, the life of maturity. Oh, God, make us mature, mature in judgment. Now, we've talked about destructive and redemptive judgment. Now, says Jesus, the mature judgment of others must sometimes be exclusive. Exclusive. That's a precious word. And I'll show you how it fits right in here. We must not judge others destructively. We must always judge others redemptively. But sometimes we must judge others exclusively. Now, let's look at this. There's no break in our Lord's teaching, I say. The theme is still mature ju judgment, and the words that are employed here are severe, admittedly, but they say something to our generation and to this group here this morning that needs to be said. And in these closing moments, I want us to look at it very carefully. Both in the church and in the world, there are forces and passions which can be so stirred up as to react as dogs would react and as hogs would react. To dramatize this, our Lord actually used these two terms, dogs and swine, dogs and hogs, to describe the impurity, ferocity of some people's reactions in the matter of judgment. Therefore, in some of our judgments, we've got to be exclusive. Now, where and when does that happen? Number one, sometimes we must be exclusive in our worship, in our worship. When we come together for worship, sometimes we have to be exclusive. We have to exclude people who don't understand what we're doing in case they turn on us like dogs and hogs. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's look at it. Do not give what is holy to the dogs. Now, the earliest comment on that word of the Savior's comes from a very old manuscript an anonymous treatise of the early second century attributed to the 12 apostles. And this is how it reads. And it's a wonderful commentary on this. And let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist. That's the Lord's Supper. That's the Lord's Supper. Except those who've been baptized in the name of the Lord. For it is concerning this that our Lord hath said, give not that which is holy to dogs. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? This is undoubtedly the interpretation of a principle which, of course, has a wider application. The word holy here refers to the sacrifices that were put on the brazen altar because Jesus said it isn't 
the sacrifice that sanctifies the altar, but the altar that sanctifies the gift. And here is something very, very holy, very holy. So in effect, the Savior was saying, don't give the holy offering from the altar to scavenger dogs. And yet that's happening all over our land. All over our land. In our acts of worship, we should remember that we enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, that in the light of this we're to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus said, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That may sound very strange in a day when you don't know if a converter or unconverted in a church. There are spiritual and doctrinal laws that protect the privileges of worship. And to violate them, I want to tell you, is to invite God's judgment. When the Corinthian church desecrated the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? You read 1 Corinthians 11 later on today. People died. Why did they die? God judged them. For this reason, some are sick among you and some are dead. Some are dead. This is casting that which is holy to dogs. And as the days grow darker and the coming of the Lord draws nigh, I feel more strongly than ever that we should be careful and less casual in our worship life. After all, the word of God is clear. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has he who believes with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not what is unclean, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Somebody says to me, then, should I leave a liberal church? where the deity of Christ isn't believed in, where the Bible isn't expounded, where missions aren't prayed for, where Jesus isn't exalted? My answer is yes. Right away. Right away. You'll have to answer for the money you gave to that church and the support you gave to that kind of preaching. And you say, ah, but I've got connections. That's absolutely irrelevant compared with your relationship with God. And in the long run, you're going to be very, 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 very ashamed when you stand before your Lord and said, I stood in a church that blasted your name, Lord. Cast not that which is holy to dogs. Sometimes we've got to be exclusive in our worship. Sometimes we must be exclusive in our witness. That has to do with the pigs. Nor cast your pearls before the hogs, lest they trample them under feet and turn and lacerate you. And folks, this is going to give you a tremendous, a tremendous lift. Even though it's very severe language, you have a tremendous lift because some of you 
come under bondage sometimes. I believe what I said the other night is absolutely true, that we should live such spirit-filled lives that whether in silence, whether the look in the eye, the handshake, or whether in speech, we're always witnessing to the Lord Jesus in the way our behavior indicates that there's a miracle about us, there's something supernatural about us. That may lead to a wonderful talk that might lead a person to Christ or at least put a link in the chain. But you know, there are some people you shouldn't talk to. You shouldn't talk to. And because you don't talk to them, it doesn't mean to say that you're not a good witness. No, you're following what Jesus says here. Listen, pearls are most costly and precious jewels. For this reason alone, they shouldn't be thrown to pigs, right? They'll only turn and rend you for not finding food to their liking. You see, pearls closely resemble corn. And at first sight, the pigs think, oh, corn. And then they get to chew on pearls. And they show their revenge. What then does this teach about our Christian witness? The answer is maturity of judgment. Maturity of judgment. In what way, you say? Well, it applies to the young convert as well as to the older Christian here. It's a maturity of judgment. There is, of course, a growth of maturity, but there's also a gift of maturity that God gives at special times. You know, when the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus wanted his apostles to go out as witnesses, he said, don't you open your mouths? Don't you open your mouths? Now listen, you can pray, you can have fellowship, you can read your Bible, but don't you open your mouths until ye be endued with power from on high. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Why did the Lord Jesus say that? I'll tell you why. Because only the Holy Spirit can guide and guard our witness. Only it's this Holy Spirit can guide and guard our witness. Because you see, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them for they're spiritually discerned. And sometimes to witness to some people, to witness to some people is like casting pearls before swine. They're going to trample them under feet and then tear you to pieces. But if you're really guided by the Holy Spirit, the maturity of judgment would be is, good morning, sir, and you know very well that that's not the person to talk to. Not the person to talk to. You see, there is a language of Canaan which is not associated with the natural mind or the carnal mind. To us who are living in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel, all these scriptural expressions and the wonder of the Lord Jesus are all very, very precious and so forth. But to the carnal and natural mind, like pearls before swine. I'll never forget standing on the periphery of an open-air meeting many years ago where some rather immature people were trying their best to do a little bit of witnessing. And instead of relating even to the unconverted people, I heard one speaker get up and talk about the Lord Jesus. He's the fairest among 10,000, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, and all those precious experiences that just warm my heart. But I saw a group of people there absolutely tearing that to shreds. There were hogs. And you know what our friend William Barclay says? He puts it this way. 
it is often impossible to talk to some people about Jesus Christ. Their insensitivity, their moral blindness, their intellectual pride and cynical mockery make them impervious to words about Christ. That doesn't mean to say you don't pray for them. That doesn't mean to say you don't love them. Because the Bible says we even do love our enemies. But to try and feed them pearls when they're just going to trample them under feet and tear you to shreds is immature judgment. See what we're talking about? Immature judgment. Immature judgment. There are times in our Savior's ministry when he refused to share his treasures with the world. Do you remember that? Think of the parable of the sower and the seed, which he explained more explicitly, listen carefully, after he was alone, alone with his disciples, alone, alone with his disciples. On another occasion, Jesus said to the Pharisees, let them alone, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. That's where they belong. Jesus said that. Then there was that supreme moment in history when Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate, 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 I believe with a certain amount of compassion, I tend to think there was a trace of it, tried to press him, press him to defend himself. And he answered him to never a word. And he answered him to never a word. So there are times when we should be exclusive in our worship. There are times when we should be exclusive in our witness. And it's part of mature judgment. The verse that guides us best is the one I've used several times during these meetings. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify Christ in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer, a defense for your faith to everyone that what? That's the key. That's the key. That's the key. To everyone that asketh you a reason for the word, the logos, the reason that is in you, with meekness and fear. God is looking for maturity of life in you and me, and he reminds us of something I'd like to finish with, and will you turn with it? Just turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, and we're through. Hebrews chapter 5. I think this verse is absolutely fabulous. Hebrews chapter 5. And verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14. What have we been talking about? The life of maturity. A maturity which is never destructive. A maturity which is always redemptive. A maturity which is sometimes exclusive. Those are the three points. Never destructive always redemptive, sometimes exclusive. And in these words, we read this. The writer to the Hebrew says, everyone, I'm reading another version here, everyone who partakes only of milk, milk, 
you never get beyond the nappy stage. Milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food, that's what we'll be having this week, I trust, solid food belongs to those who are what? Of mature age, full age, mature, who by reason of use have their senses, their faculties of judgment, that's what we've been talking about, faculties of judgment. What does it say? Exercise to discern both what? Good and evil. That's what I'm pleading for. Maturity. Maturity. We need to exercise our senses not only in regard to doctrinal issues, but also in respect to relational issues. As we judge, we must never be destructive. We must always be redemptive. And sometimes exclusive. And in doing so, we shall grow and mature. And this maturity will then lead to the unity of the body for which the Savior is praying right now, right now in heaven. Father, Father, make them one. Make them one. That the world may believe you sent me. May God hasten the day when, listen, he can look down with the angels from heaven and say, Behold, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. Amen? You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of a five-part series of messages Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.